Well, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. It's the last time I'm going to tell you to do that. Not just Nehemiah chapter 13, but Nehemiah in general. I didn't say this in the announcements, but just a heads up, because we are finishing the book of Nehemiah today. In two weeks, uh, we're going to be starting a summer series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. have a group of guys that I've tapped here in the church that are going to be teaching along with me uh, in the next couple months, and I'm really excited. You guys have heard from these guys before, even this past season, teaching in home group settings, and really excited for you all to get a chance to hear from them from the pulpit as well, and uh, looking forward to that. So if you know anybody that's like, man, I've, you know what, you've, maybe you've had a conversation with somebody about the Sermon on the Mount even, like, hey, our church is going to be going through that, uh, through that portion of Scripture, uh, and just seeing it as a great opportunity to invite people in. So looking forward to that, but this morning we are finishing our study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking today at part two of a study I've titled Compromise and Cleansing, Our main text is Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 31. But for some context, as we finish this final chapter of Nehemiah, it's really important for us to remember, as I said last week, that all of what we've been seeing since the beginning of chapter 1, if we've lost focus at any point along the way, has been with this emphasis of God really wanting to rebuild and renew and revive his people. And if we, if we kept those, even those three things in mind, and we went back and we started reading through the chapters, we can see how God has been trying to work this into his people, wanting to work this into the life of his servant Nehemiah. With that emphasis in mind, three different times in this final chapter, we see a cleansing, literally, taking place in relation to Nehemiah dealing with some sinful compromises that existed among the people, and Nehemiah dealing strongly with those areas of compromise. And we saw one of those cleansings take place last week after learning about the compromise of the high priest of Eliashib, who had made a room for a a man named Tobiah, one of the prominent enemies of the Jews, making a room for him in the storeroom's of the temple, but that compromise, you know, really did affect the rest of the people in a way where we saw that they had forsaken the house of their God, and God used Nehemiah to help write some of those things. But we also see four different times in this chapter that Nehemiah, he prays. This is not an uncommon thing. This is not like, oh, all of a sudden, Nehemiah is praying now at the end of our story of Nehemiah's life, not the end of his life, but what we're seeing of it biblically, but that all throughout the book of Nehemiah, that man, uh, Nehemiah is a man who was committed to his God, communed with his God, sought the heart of his God. It, whether it was a, a moment of feeling burdened by the Lord, like we saw in the very beginning of the book, and he's pr- praying and fasting, he's fallen to his his, his face before the Lord, he's crying out to God, or whether that's Nehemiah in the midst of dealing with oppression and difficulty, and not just from the things happening with the enemy of the Jews on the outside, but we've seen him dealing with problems on the inside. Jewish people taking advantage of one another and how Nehemiah sought the Lord. He, he needed his God. 
He wanted the wisdom of his God. And we continue to see that here, but even more prominently in this last chapter of Nehemiah, four times in this chapter, Nehemiah praying as he acts in his zeal for the Lord to get rid of the compromise, making it clear that the cleansing was being done for the Lord. And we saw the first of those four prayers of Nehemiah in the final verse of our study last week, verse 14. See, the, the covenant, the, the, the commitments, the promises that the people had made in chapter 10, which took place potentially, as I said last week, 13 or more years before what we're seeing now in chapter 13, to not neglect the house of their God, to, to not violate the Sabbath day, and to not give their children into marriage to the, to the pagan nations around them, have all now been broken as we're seeing in this chapter. It seems that they kept their covenant to the Lord for a little over 11 years while Nehemiah was still with them there in Jerusalem. But when he returned to King Artaxerxes, the people's commitment to the Lord really fell apart as, as sinful compromise crept in. And if we feel at any point, as I said last week, in what we see in chapter 13, that Nehemiah is just, you know, being too harsh, he's being too severe in how he seeks to correct the failures of the people, we need to remember that the people before the Lord, again, in chapter 10, had given God permission. They had welcomed his correction, his discipline, his judgment even, if they failed to fulfill the, the oaths that they made to the Lord. And so God, in His love for His people, the Jews, is using Nehemiah in this final chapter as an agent of the cleansing, the correcting, the the chastening work that He was wanting to do uh, in the Jewish people in Nehemiah's day to deal with the sinful compromises that His people had settled into so that His people would walk right with Him and be holy unto Him. This chapter, for me at least, reminds us that our God cares about our holiness. We'll do what's needed in our lives to take us from where we are to where He wants us to be, a people holy unto Him. And what we find here is that in the midst of a people who did not keep their commitments to the Lord, we see a God that always stays true to His commitments. I mean, we considered in our intro studies to Nehemiah all the failures of the people and all the hundreds of years that preceded what ended up leading to their captivity. We see just, we see a wayward people with a faithful God, a people who are wicked at times with a good God. And to see even in this final chapter, you know, like, wow, great, they had this 11 years of you know, staying true to their commitments, but to see like how badly everything has now gone off the rails after Nehemiah left. To know like this is really the heart of God here saying, look, even, even when you totally blow it in all the things that you said that you would do, I'm still going to stay true to you. I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'm still going to pursue after you. I'm still going to bring you back to me. Because that's the kind of God that I am. And I just love that. In the book of Nehemiah, we can see the heart of our God here for us. And so with that context, let's look at 
verses 15 through 21. Starting in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. It says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning, profaning the Sabbath. So it was, verse 19, at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. This is not Nehemiah telling him he's going to pray for them. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Verses 15 and 16 reveal what Nehemiah saw in those days. Again, the setting is clear at the end of what we looked at last week in the middle part of chapter 13 with what was going on as the people uh, were called out by Nehemiah and they, they saw like, man, we, we have forsaken the house of our God again. Like we, we need to do what's right. The, the Levites have gone back to their fields because they can't, they're, they're going to starve. If they don't go back and take care of themselves, then, then they're not going to be able to eat. And so the, the worship life of the, our people is so important. We need to prioritize this. We need to take care of them. We're going to bring all the offerings back to the Lord. It's going to, all going to come back. And, and Nehemiah is setting everybody in their places and positions and roles there. In those days, all kinds of work that you would expect to see the Jewish people doing Every other day of the week, and the Jewish people making purchases of all kinds of goods from uh, the people of Tyre, and these were, the, these were non-Jewish people who didn't live by the Sabbath laws of the Jews, that all of this was happening on the Sabbath day when none of it was supposed to be happening. Clearly, from what the people of Tyre, the merchants of Tyre were selling, we see that something fishy was going on. I didn't come up with that. I heard somebody, another pastor said it. Now you're going to have to go back. Why did he say, what? They're selling fish. Come on, people. I'm just kidding. As a reminder, in, in chapter 10, verse 31, the Jewish people there in Judah made a renewed commitment to do things God's way when it came to the Sabbath day. Not working, not buying things from others on the Sabbath day, it required them to trust the Lord. Require them to trust in the Lord's provision for them as they prioritize the things, the, the way of life that God had called them to. And so the people in chapter 10, they made this covenant. They made a commitment to trust the Lord, to trust His provision. 
to become the distinct, set-apart people he had called them to be and seemed to keep that commitment for a time until Nehemiah was absent. But sinful compromise in their worship life to the Lord led to a lack of trust in the Lord. And, and that's, that always happens. When our intimacy with the Lord is not where it should be, when it's been diminished, when it's been hindered, when it's non-existent, like I just, I don't spend time with Him in the Word, I'm not in prayer, I'm not in fellowship, the, the next thing to go oftentimes is our trust. Because we're not being... We're not being reminded of who our God is. We're not being reminded of His promises. We're, we're not being reminded of the things that He's called us to, the way of life that we've been called into that's so much different than what we see in the world, going on in the world around us. That our trust in God will begin to diminish as well. There's always a connection there between our trust in the Lord and our worship life with the Lord. If you're seeing a lack in your life, just as a word of encouragement this morning, if you see a lack of your, in your life of, tr- of trust, we could also use faith. It's the same, speaks of the same thing. If you, if you find yourself in a lack of faith, a lack of trust, I, I, I would ask you, I'd encourage you this morning to, to look at, at where your worship life with the Lord is. Look at it honestly and humbly. Because if that's, damaged, if that's sporadic, if it's just kind of here or there, and it's not very consistent, it's not very strong, it's not very stable, it's very surface level, then, then, then we could start to see, well, that's, that's part of why I'm, I'm lacking in trust. It's why I'm having a hard time having faith in the Lord in these different areas of my life. It's why I don't trust in the Lord's provision, and because I don't trust, in, even though we're not bound to keep the Sabbath law. But those same principles of me trusting in the Lord with my finances, which is oftentimes the hardest part for people to trust the Lord with. I'll, God, I'll trust you with all kinds of things, but don't mess with my pocketbook. Don't mess with my paycheck. Don't mess with my retirement. Don't mess with my savings account. But to see when we're really seeking after the Lord, when we're seeking first the kingdom of God, when we're prioritizing each day, time in his word, time in prayer, not in a legalistic sort of way, but to see that relationally how valuable that is, that, that our trust will begin to increase. It will. Their sinful compromise then in their worship life to the Lord, it led to a lack of trust in the Lord, which is now seen in how they violated God's Sabbath law. Now in verses 17 and 18, we see that Nehemiah, after already warning the people that he saw working on the Sabbath, he he also contended with the nobles. This was the rulers of the people. Calling them out for the evil that they were doing and profaning or defiling the Sabbath day, which would make us think that like, Part of why the people were working was because the rulers were saying, you need to get out there and keep producing. So Nehemiah's like, cool, I'll warn all them because they're the ones actually doing it. But I'm going to now look to those who were in charge, the bosses. Like, you guys, you're, you're defiling the Sabbath. This is evil. 
He reminds them that their fathers did the same thing and that God brought disaster upon them in Jerusalem, letting them know that what they were doing was bringing added wrath upon Israel with their Sabbath violations. You know, it's interesting the kind of things, when we read God's Word, and I'm sure I'm not any different than any of you in this respect, when we see something where God's clearly like, you know, a a do this or a don't do this, that we can start to like attribute like a a value, an importance to certain things. Like that, that doesn't really, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, like, we could look at, the, the Jews of Nehemiah's day could have looked at the Sabbath law, and it's not really that big of a deal. We're just doing a little work. I needed some fish. I needed some goods. These guys were selling it. No one else is selling it. I just went and bought some things from them. And, and maybe in their own hearts, they just kind of made excuses for certain things, even though God's law was so clear about it, even though they had made a commitment connected to that thing that maybe you found yourself in a similar place at different times in your life where like, you're like, well, you know, I know he says not to do that or I know he says to do that because it's not all what not to do. Sometimes it's the things that we're being called to and we could kind of go like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know that that's, I don't think he cares as much about that as he does about this. Instead of just going, well, if he said it, he obviously meant it. And if, if he preserved it in his word, he obviously wanted me to like have this be something that I, I took heed to in my life. Nehemiah did not take this lightly because he knew their history. He knew that their fathers disregarded the Sabbath just as they were doing. Knew, knew that at least part of the reason that their city and their temple had been destroyed, why many of their people had been killed and others had been taken captive into Babylon about 170 years prior to this was because their fathers disregarded the Sabbath laws that God had given to them. And Nehemiah, really showing the heart of God here, did not want to see that happen ever again. Again, the heart of God seen in Nehemiah. God's not, he's not like, well, just let them do their thing. Like, I'm just... You know, yeah, they're accruing wrath to themselves. I'll just let them be conquered all over again. He's like, no, I, I want to prevent that. As a good father, he wanted to prevent that. He sees a direction that they're going that's going to lead them back into experiencing the wrath of God because of their disobedience. He's like, I want to prevent that. And, and we can look at Nehemiah and go, wow, and he's being harsh. He's being hard. But praise God for strong, hard words that God will speak into our lives so that we can see things that would lead us into disastrous sorts of situations or ways of life or a, a course of living. And he's willing to say what's hard because he loves us enough to do that. He wants to... He wants to take us out of that place and see us walking in the, in the place of blessing, the place of fulfillment, right? Because in Psalm 1, we see blessed is the man, we could put woman in there too, blessed is the person who walks not in the way of the ungodly, 
There's a blessing in doing things God's way. And God's like, I want to bless you. I, I want you to be in that place where I can bless you. But sometimes in order to get to that place, he's like, let's address the place that you're in where I can't bless you first. Let's deal with that thing so that we can move you over where I want you to be. <laughs> but I'm so thankful God does that with us so faithfully, so graciously oftentimes. Their Sabbath violation was a lack of submission to the word of the Lord and a lack of trust in the provision of the Lord. Keeping the Sabbath day it required faith. And not only was this a bad influence on their fellow Jews, it was also a bad witness to the foreigners who didn't know or worship their God, losing their distinctiveness that should have been a light to the godless people around them of how amazing their God is that would draw others into to want to put their faith in Yahweh too. And after contending with the nobles, Nehemiah in verses 19 through 21, he took some practical steps, making sure the gates would be shut. They weren't going to be open until after the Sabbath. He posted some of his servants at the gates. He, he warned the merchants who camped outside the gates in order to help his people keep the Sabbath. But let's see the cleansing and prayer of Nehemiah now in verse 22. Verse 22, it says, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. The, the people had been caught up in compromise. They had not sanctified. They hadn't set apart as holy the Sabbath day. The, the Sabbath day had become a common day, just like any other day for them. But these cleansed Levites were now to be an example here to the rest of the people who would come in and out of the city of the importance of being cleansed from compromise. The importance of honoring and obeying the Lord regarding the Sabbath day, really an example of holiness for the rest of the people to follow. And guys, we need those examples of holiness in our lives. We need other cleansed Levites, sort of, so to speak, servants of God who take God seriously who we can look to and go, man, like, I want to be like them. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. But also that we're to be those examples for others as well. And there at the end of verse 22, we see Nehemiah's prayer after handling the compromise of the people with the Sabbath, asking the Lord again, as he did in verse 14, to remember him. It's not that Nehemiah thought that God had amnesia, God, remember me, God? Nehemiah? Hey, Lord. You ever, you ever approach the Lord? Like, maybe in the past, you're like, hey, Lord, it's me. Um, it's me, Jared, again, coming. Like, you know, I'd, um, I came to you, like, last year. I was in a bind. Help me out. It wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't that kind of remembrance. 
He's like, Lord, look upon me. Lord, I need your help. Asking the Lord to, to spare him according to the greatness of the Lord's mercy. Nehemiah asking the Lord to spare him was, was really him humbly asking the Lord to show compassion. Compassion in accordance with the greatness, the abundance of the Lord's mercy. Or we could also say his unfailing love. See, Nehemiah didn't take pleasure in having to deal severely with his people in these areas of compromise or unholiness. These things troubled him. They drove him to the Lord for his help, for his compassion, for his merciful, unfailing love. Why? Because Nehemiah knew in a posture of humility and dependency that he needed the Lord. You know, when we're called to something hard, you probably found yourself in the same sort of spot. You may have prayed the same sort of prayer as Nehemiah. Lord, I need your mercy. Lord, look upon me right now. I need, I need you to be with me, Lord. This is a hard situation. These are hard things. And to know that the things that Nehemiah prayed for were things that God was like, yeah, I want to do that. You know, oftentimes we pray for stuff and we're feeling like, I, I need to like convince God of something. God, I need to convince you to forgive me. I need to convince you to help me. I need to convince you to be merciful. I need to convince you to work in this person's life. And, and there's a good godly pleading with the Lord. There's an, there's an intercessory sort of aspect to that. But then things shift a little bit when we, when we see that like, Man, there's power in just praying what God's already said he wants to do. So when God calls himself a God who's merciful and compassionate and he's gracious and he's abounding in loving kindness and he's, he's quick to forgive, when God describes himself in all of these sorts of ways, all throughout Scripture, even the Old Testament, that we can pray that without feeling like I need to convince God to now be merciful, gracious, patient, and forgiving because he already said that's who he is. That's what he wants to do. So when we come to him, yes, we come humbly. God, I need you. This person needs you in this situation, whatever the thing is. But we can pray those things with confidence knowing that God wants to do the things that he's already said he wants to do. He wants to do it more than you and I want to see him do it. When we come to the Lord and we're like, God, I'm struggling and I need victory in this area of my, of my life. And, and then we remember, well, Jesus already said that he came to set people free. He wants us to walk in that freedom that he's provided us. We can pray in accordance with God's word and in accordance with his unfailing love and know that, God, you want to give me victory in my life more than I want to see the victory in my life. Lord, you want to comfort me. You're the God of all comfort. We know that God calls himself that in Scripture. He's the God of all comfort. We're told about Jesus in the New Testament. He is our hope. He is our peace. That all of this is found for us in the person of Jesus Christ. If we could just come back, that worship life, again, just coming back to that first love, just coming back to that place of intimacy, 
what God will do in those things, what God wants to speak into our lives. Nehemiah, he just went to the Lord. God, I need you. These people need you. This is rough, Lord. Would you help me out? And we see God helping Nehemiah here. Let's continue on the verses 23 through 25. This can't be a three-part study. Verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. (laughs) Took off his chancla, my mom was reminding me. Took off the chancla and started smacking people with his sandal. No, I don't know that he did that, but pulled out their hair. Made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Verse 23 begins the same as verse 15. In those days. Still going. Showing us that the Lord was exposing all of these areas of sinful compromise in that same season of time. Because he was wanting his people to repent of their sin and have a right relationship with him restored. As I said last week, to re- wanting to restore their withness, their, their intimacy, their closeness with Lord, and their witness. In those days, we find that still another area of sinful compromise was, was discovered. Now related to the Jewish people intermarrying with the people of the, ra- uh, of the land around them. Verses 23 and 24 reveal what Nehemiah saw. Jewish men married to women of Ashdod. This is Philistines, right? The area of Philistia. Ammon and Moab, with half of their children speaking the language of Ashdod, unable to speak the language of the Jewish people in Judah, but many of them only speaking the language of these other nations. This was another promise that they had made in chapter 10, that we see they've already broken now in chapter 13. In chapter 10, verse 30, they, they made a renewed commitment in their covenant to the Lord that they signed to not give their daughters in marriage to the peoples of the land, nor take the daughters of the people of the land for their sons. As I said before, this was not in any way a racial issue. It was a spiritual issue. A spiritual issue. Intermarrying with the non-Jewish people and the nations around them would mean inviting in the influence of the false gods, the pagan worship practices of those people into their homes, which clearly from Israel's past was the path back into idolatry and rebellion to the Lord and all sorts of other problems. But the commitment that they had made in chapter 10 has now been broken. They had intermarried with the pagan women of the land while Nehemiah was absent. They're like, oh, I can't see him anymore. I've been eyeing this lady over here. Like, how long did it, they wait till they, this happened, right? This clearly was not happening in the 11 plus years that Nehemiah was already there in that first round of his stay as governor. And now it's like, well, I don't. I don't know when he's coming back. I mean, I, I feel like we signed something. 
can't really remember what was on it. I don't want to look for it. I don't want to be reminded of what the covenant was. And they start, you know, looking out. They're interacting with other people. Now there's children born from these marriages. Half of the children could not speak Hebrew, which meant meant that the, the next generation of kids who couldn't speak Hebrew would not be able to read or understand the law of God. And and it would prevent or at least hinder them from being able to know and worship the God of the Jews, Yahweh. This was not God saying, oh, I have a problem with some of these kids speaking another language. Like, I don't want them to be bilingual. He's like, they're not going to know me. When the word of God and the law of God is being read on all the festivals that we have, they're not going to understand one word of it. The word of God's not going to be instilled into their hearts. They're not going to know me, and God cared about that. You think about what could happen in a generation. What can happen when a generation stops teaching their kids about the Lord? What happens to that younger generation that grows up? That legacy doesn't just end with that next generation. It keeps going. Those people grow up, they don't teach their kids. Those kids grow up, they don't teach their kids. And all of a sudden, the whole nation, it's like, we don't even know the Lord anymore. It happened. It happened throughout Israel's history. This is not, we're not like hypothesizing about something. This really happened. And after Nehemiah saw all this, he responded severely with the Jewish men. He wasn't slapping around the women or the kids. He's speaking specifically to the men here, the Jewish men. These men were responsible. Why? Because they were the ones who made the commitment. They signed the covenant. So he deals strongly. He invokes the curses of God's... This wasn't Nehemiah cussing them out, first of all, when we see that he cursed them. He's invoking the curses of God's law that were connected with disobeying God's law in these things. He struck some of them, pulled out their hair. Now, if you look back earlier, years before Nehemiah ever came to Jerusalem, Ezra came. And Ezra confronted the same issue. He found at that time that there were a lot of Jewish people who had intermarried with the people of the land around them. And and we find Ezra in a state of brokenness and humility, crying out to the Lord, seeking God, falling to his needs, praying and, and there, in that situation in Ezra's life, that we find in the book of Ezra, it's Ezra who's pulling out his own hair in grief. And, and I don't know if this is like where Nehemiah went with this. Like, well, obviously it didn't work for them to see Ezra pulling out his hair. Let's pull out some of their hair. <laughs> I don't know what the correlation here was, but it was just like, you guys need to know how serious this is. And And it's likely it was probably their beard hair. Not that it made it any better, but there was a dishonor that came away with losing some of your beard hair for a guy. So I'm already, I've been dishonored my whole life because I can't grow a beard. But we also see that he made those who had broken God's law swear an oath that they wouldn't give their daughters as wives or take their daughters as wives for their sons or themselves. 
And we might think, it could be easy to think, and I think if, you know, someone else read this not knowing some of the context or the background or the sort of the cultural element of this, that, you know, Nehemiah has lost it. He went too far. He's being cruel. But again, the people had made an oath to God, an oath that carried a curse if they didn't carry out the oath welcoming the discipline, the correction, the judgment of God if they failed in their promise, which means really that they welcome this sort of response by Nehemiah. They already gave God the permission to do it. They welcomed it. Nehemiah acting as an agent of the correcting, cleansing, purifying work of God in their lives. But, but look at what Nehemiah says in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, if I can find it. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Nehemiah warns the people by using King Solomon as an example of what not to do because of his sin in these things. And we find this situation. If you want to write it down, look it up later on your own. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. This is where we find this whole thing happened, where we're told that King Solomon loved Many foreign women from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their God. We find in that section that Solomon ignored God's law, that he clung to those foreign women in love, and that when he was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. We're told there that his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that he did not follow the Lord as did his father David. Nehemiah referenced King Solomon here because ultimately the Lord was concerned with his people's hearts not being turned away from him like Solomon's was, knowing all the destruction that comes from the evil of idolatry. Understand the problem in Solomon's life was not a lack of a supply of wisdom because no one had ever had more wisdom than King Solomon. It was that he didn't submit to, he didn't apply the wisdom that the Lord had for him when it came to who he gave his love to, who he married and so made incredibly foolish decisions in taking in all these foreign wives, these, these foolish decisions resulting in his heart being turned away from the Lord and him doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a tragic, tragic thing to see. Basically, Nehemiah is saying here, look, if, if wise Solomon who was beloved by God, was led into sin by marrying pagan women, why do you think it'll turn out any differently for you? 
Don't do this evil. Turn back to the Lord before your hearts are turned away from him. But, but look at what it goes on to say in verse 28. And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests, like cooking duty and dead guy duty. He wanted some other duties. It's a Nacho Libre reference. It's also my Father's Day, so if I want to throw in a Nacho Libre reference, I will just throw it right in there. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We considered last week how Eliashib, the high priest, had been allied with the enemy of the Jews, Tobiah, the Ammonite, which was likely an alliance made through intermarriage. But, but now we see that one of Eliashib's grandsons had married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. He was the other most prominent enemy of the Jewish people that we've seen throughout this book, Sanballat and Tobiah, the two main arch nemeses of the Jewish people. And I have to believe that at least some of the sinful compromise that the Jewish people there in Judah got caught up in must have been influenced by what they saw happening in Eliashib, the high priest's life, his family. Because if the guy who should have been the most godly and God-honoring among them, didn't seem to care about God's standard when it came to intermarrying with the pagan people around them, then why should they care either, they might ask themselves. The priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites had been defiled, had been polluted. And so Nehemiah drives out one of the priests. Nehemiah, not a respecter of persons. Nehemiah was a thing, I wonder if the high priest is going to be mad at me about this. He's like, I don't care if this guy's his grandson. Like, get out of here. Like, what are you doing? He was in the priestly line. Right? Eliashib is the high priest. The high priestly line came from Aaron. And so this grandson would have been in the line potentially to become high priest one day. And Nehemiah's like, no, it ain't going to happen. Like, this dude is not going to be the one who is representing God to the people because he doesn't respect God's word. He doesn't obey it. And so he chased the guy out. He's like, get out of here. I don't know if the guy, like, ran away to his father-in-law and like, well, I'm just going to hang out in horror name over here. Outside, I'm going to hang out in Samaria now because that's where my wife's dad lives. The Nehemiah here, driving out one of the priests who was bringing defilement into the priesthood, now brought the offenders to the Lord in prayer. Remember them. Before he was saying, remember me. Remember me, God. He's like, Lord, Remember them. Who's the them? Probably the man he chased off. Eliashib, the high priest. Maybe Sanballat. Lord, remember them. 
wanting God in his prayer there to, to right the wrongs that existed so the priesthood would be holy to the Lord again. Also in verse 30, Nehemiah cleansed. He purged them of everything pagan. This is just a reference to everything that didn't belong, everything that wasn't of the Lord, everything that would have defiled them and kept them in an unholy state. And he assigned duties to the priests. Again, cooking duty, dead guy duty, we already covered those. The Levites, each to his service, making sure that the wood offering and the first fruits offering at the appointed times are brought in. All of these assignments being given so that the house of God would not be neglected. It would not be forsaken again. And then we see Nehemiah's final prayer at the end of verse 31, which again makes it clear. Nehemiah wasn't doing any of these things for the praise or recognition of the people. He's not going like, oh, I hope they know all the good things that I did. He's like, God, I'm doing it for you. This is all for you, Lord. He didn't care if others remembered all the good he had done. He just wanted the Lord to remember him, ultimately just wanting to honor his God with his life and be faithful to him. You know, praise God for his heart seen in the actions of Nehemiah in this chapter. But the zeal we see in Nehemiah really reflected the zeal that God had for his people to not leave his people in their state of sinful compromise with a wrecked intimacy with him and a wrecked witness for him, but wanting to do something about that gap where they were compared to where God desired them to be that existed so that their relationship with him, their witness for him would be all he desired it to be. And as we consider the book of Nehemiah as a whole, now closing out this study of Nehemiah, you know, more than this book being about Nehemiah, we've seen that it's really been about God. He's the hero of the account of Nehemiah and all that took place. It was God who loved his people, the Jews, and wanted to bring about a work of rebuilding and renewal and revival in them. And he gets all the glory for all that happened in this amazing book. And just some final takeaways here. You know, when I consider the state of our world, the state of unsaved people, the the brokenness that exists spiritually as people are separated from God by their sin, but, but how God wants to come in and save and forgive and bring about something new in their lives by His grace and through His Spirit. I believe God wants to stir us to have His heart and His eyes for lost people that we would be burdened and broken over the destruction in people's lives, being given the love and compassion of Jesus for them, that we'd be continually praying for them, be led by the Spirit of God, that we'd become instruments in the hand of God that help others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as we show His love and we share His gospel. And when I consider the state of the church in the world, how the witness of the church, how the witness of Christians in different ways in different areas has been damaged, it's been ruined, or how some in the church have moved away from holding fast to God's Word and have even disregarded God's Word and created a, a Christianity of their own making where they define what holiness is and what sin is, 
When I think about the apathy and the complacency and the compromise that exists in the church today, in the, in the lives of believers today, where we've neglected the house of the Lord and the kingdom of the Lord and the commission of the Lord, I believe God wants to rebuild the ruins of both our witness and our witness. That He wants to cause those who have drifted from Him and His word to return. Wants those who have disregarded his word and created a, a Christianity of their own making to repent and to submit their lives to his authority. That he wants to do a work of rebuilding and, and renewal and revival that would bring people out of their apathy, out of complacency, out of compromise, away from neglect of the house, the church of Jesus, and the kingdom and commission of Jesus to being a people whose lives are fully submitted, fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Guys, the work before us is great. We think about Nehemiah coming to Jerusalem. Everything's just destroyed. The walls are all broken down. The gates have all been burned with fire. We can look around at our world and think and be intimidated or discouraged or even frustrated. Look at all his brokenness. Look at all his damage. Everything's bad. But that we would catch God's vision. God's not discouraged. God's not looking at all the destruction and going, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do about all this. I don't think it's ever going to be fixed. But God's like, I can fix it. Like Bob the Builder. Or Felix, the fix-it Felix, right? I can fix it. He's just looking at us. He's like, I already gave you the blueprints. I already, you know how I want to build. You know how the destruction is going to be dealt with. Like, I've given you a commission. I've given you everything that you need. I've given you my spirit. You have the power of God in you. But would we, like the people of Nehemiah's day in the beginning, when, when Nehemiah came and rallied the people together, how they set their hands to this good work, would we do the same? may not seem like a good work, some of the things that we need to set our hands to. But it's a good work. The work of His kingdom, His, his commission, His gospel, the work of ministering to people. And I pray that He'll bring continued fruit from our study of the book of Nehemiah for years to come. He's able to do it. Have Jillian and Mary come back up here. In closing, you know, I... It's hard to close out a study when you've been in, for, in it for a bit. But there's been something here, I think, for everybody. I don't, I don't know that there's not something in the book of Nehemiah that couldn't speak into what each of us are dealing with. I mean, if you're, it doesn't matter. What's end of the spectrum you might be on? Like God has got his fingerprints all over this amazing book and and to know that he's looking at us today. And he's looking at our lives and he sees. He sees better than you and me, that gap. Because we all have them, right? We all have that, that state of our, our, our lives where we're going, you know, even if we're doing great, even if we're walking strong with the Lord, we, there's always stuff in our lives where we can go, well, I could see that get better. I could, I could see God do a greater work in this area of my life or see more surrender happen in this. I could, I, could be, 
I could pray more. I could, I could, I could be more about the gospel. Whatever that thing is, we could, we could look at those things and God's going, yeah, I see those things. And I want to meet you there. I want to meet you there. And that he wants to do something about those areas of our lives that maybe we've been discouraged about. Maybe we felt like, God, what are you going to do? Or maybe we've been asking when. Not just a what are you going to do, but when. When's that going to happen? When is this person going to come back to you? When is this person going to get saved? When, when am I going to see these things change or this, my, my financial situation or this relationship or whatever? Lord, to, to just trust him, to trust him that he knows what he's doing, that he's got you, he's got me, he's got our church. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are, you're so good, Lord. We can't judge your goodness by our circumstances all the time. God, we try to see, our, see you through our circumstances. God, sometimes we can have a skewed view of who you are. But God, if we just consider who you are in truth, Lord, outside of our circumstances, Lord, God, to see that you've never not been good. You've never not been faithful. Lord, to be reminded this morning that the God of Nehemiah is our God. That God, you see the stuff that we are dealing with in our day. Lord, you see the brokenness. Lord, you see the hurt. You see the confusion, Lord God. You see all the anger. You see all the division, Lord. You see all the hopelessness. God, you see all the sick. And God, you don't distance yourself from us, but you're near. And you're working. And God, I just pray. I pray for each one this morning. Lord, you know the state of their hearts. You know the state of their lives. God, you know their you know their history, Lord. I pray that, God, you would, Lord, just work radically, Lord, in each and every life. Lord, God, I pray that you would restore any brokenness, Lord, that exists in our witness, Lord, our, our relationship with you, our intimacy with you, Lord, and also our witness, God. The example of our life, the testimony of our life. God, would you take us from where we are to where you desire us to be? Do that, Lord, by your spirit and by your grace. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning and they, they don't know you personally, they've never humbled themselves before you and, and had that conscious confession of sin and repentance of sin, Asking you, Lord Jesus, to be their Savior, to be their Lord, to be their God. I pray, Lord, even now that you would both convict and also convince. And if that's anybody here this morning and you're, you're in that spot, you just, you need, you need your sins forgiven. It's not enough to just know that God 
wants to save, that He's able to save. It's not enough to know that God is gracious and merciful and patient, but He wants you to know Him personally. He wants you to experience His forgiveness and His salvation and His grace and His mercy personally in your life. And so if that's anybody here this morning and you're going, look, I I need Jesus, would you stand where you're at so I can pray for you? This is your time between you and the Lord. The things that are wrong can be made right this morning. That distance that exists between you and the Father can be removed in one moment of time. There's one single step, a step of faith toward Him. Lord, I pray that God, as we continue in this attitude of worship this morning, God, we just, we want you to be honored and glorified and magnified in these songs that we sing, Lord, in the state of our hearts as we sing these songs. God, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. What a blessing it's been, Lord. You've used it. God, my prayers in the beginning of when we first started it, that, Lord, you would bring us into a season of fruitfulness and flourishing. Lord, you have You've answered my prayers, Lord God. You have done something, and you continue to do something. Lord, we pray that you would continue it. Lord, continue to bring fruit in our lives, Lord God. Continue, God, to gather people in, to save souls, to to equip your saints. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.